Hello and welcome to Screen Gab. I'm Ramon. With me is co-host. Hi, I'm Vinny. <laughs> and we are here recording inside Vinny's room. <laughs> because Tara is busy and... Yeah, our parents uh, are too busy right now. And so we're doing yeah. another special on-site episode. Yeah. Please pray for Tara and her workload. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And in this episode, we're going to tackle the Coen brothers' Hail Caesar. And one of our favorite movies from last year that unfortunately did not get... Uh, screened here. Although I did see a trailer, so yeah, there's there's maybe some there's maybe a five percent chance of hope, but maybe not. Right, and anyway, that's Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs, which yeah. we'll be discussing also this episode. Say your line exactly as I'm about to, just as I'm about to do. Sure, okay. Would that it were so simple? 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 My dear boy, why do you say that? Why do you say it were? Well, you should say it like I said it. Y- yes. Would that it were so simple? Would that it were so simple? Would that it were so simple? Would that it would that it were so simple? Watch my mouth. Would that it were so simple? Would that it were so simple? Keep your head still. Would that it were so simple? Would that it were so simple? Would that it were so simple? I'm trying to say that, Mr. Lawrence. Lawrence? Hmm? I thought a minute ago it was Lorraine. No, we can use Christian names, my good dear boy. Lawrence is fine, just as I call you Hobie. Okay. So, would that it were so simple? Would that it were so simple? Would that it were so simple? Trippingly. Would that it were so simple? Trippingly. No, don't say trippingly. Say the line trippingly. Hail Caesar is an all-star comedy set during the latter years of Hollywood's golden age. It follows a single day in the life of a studio fixer who is presented with plenty of problems to fix. This movie is directed and written by the Coen brothers and stars Josh Brolin, George Clooney, Ray Fiennes, Jonah Hill, Scarlett Johansson, Frances McDormand, Tilda Swinton, Channing Tatum, and newcomer. Is he a newcomer? Alden uh, Ehrenreich. Yeah. I mean, he was in Stoker and, and another series. Yeah. He has some other credits. Yeah, but, but here he's the but he's yeah, this one is of the leads. First, yeah. yeah, major. So, uh, Ramon, let me start by asking you what you thought of this movie. I liked it. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Coen brothers, but definitely this is uh, one of their, shall we say, lighter fare. Like uh, Burn After Reading and The Big Lebowski. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked it. Um, But it's weird. Let me tell you my experience with this movie. While I was watching it, I struggled a bit Mm -hmm. to grab control over the movie, if you know what I mean. Like, there were some narrative threads that I did not feel were important. Or I asked myself, why am I watching this particular thread? Mm-hmm. Uh, a case in point is a Scarlett Johansson yeah, b- baby yeah. drama. Um, but the point is, I found it, while I was watching it, I found it to be a bit messy. Mm-hmm. But after I saw the whole thing, I could not stop thinking about this movie and there are a lot of ideas that they're trying to say. And I enjoyed reading about this movie, reading what other people thought about this movie. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I found it to be a bit messy at times. But overall, I still think it's one of the Coen brothers' um, better comedies and better movies, actually. Yeah. Which one's your favorite? That's hard. <laughs> I would Maybe I would say... No Country for Old Men, which is completely not, not a comedy. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, sorry, my favorite <laughs> movie is No Country for Old Men. Right. And True Grit, 
mm-hmm. would be probably my second. So, uh, uh, so based on that, I'm not really, I don't really hold the Coen Brothers comedies as high a regard as the more um, serious fair. The more serious fair. Yeah, but I like this one. This is probably my favorite comedy actually mm-hmm. of theirs. Might well, be. Yeah, like you, I also felt like I was a bit struggling to figure out why there were all these different sort of avenues that would take so much more screen time that I would expect. I thought they would sort of have some kind of payoff at the end. Yeah, yeah. It's, it doesn't really work out so much that way, but it, I don't feel like it's a fault of the filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Like Because the Coens are so smart, they're some of the best living filmmakers right now. I, I feel like I'm the one... Who is like deficient? Has, yeah, has yeah. to catch up yeah. and, and figure out. There, there's yeah. something here. I, I'm the one who has to sort of figure it out. Yeah, I, I think that perfectly captures what I felt. Mm-hmm. Even though I had a hard time at some points just following what's going on or what they're trying to say, mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I was be I was watching a bad movie. I feel like I yeah, was the yeah. one who wasn't getting it or who wasn't you know appreciating the joke. So but, yeah, but in a way, something like that, that kind of storytelling, it sort of has it keeps the audience on their toes. Like mm-hmm. I'm really paying attention to everything because I'm thinking, how is this all going to fit together at the yeah. end? Although it sort of threw me that, for example, like Jonah Hill is basically in one scene. Yeah, Francis McDormand is in one scene. Yeah, and yeah. Rafe has two. Yeah, and you know, I mean, it, it just like. Like there are some also like really interesting cameos. Like there's Dave Krumholtz, mm, mm. uh, Alex Karpovsky, who I think doesn't even have a speaking line. He just takes photos. Yeah, I think of that right? meeting. Yeah, I mean Jack Houston, who I love from Boardwalk Empire, is in the film within the film uh, with Agnes Dane, who is Giovanni Ribisi's wife. Yeah, I don't even remember. There's the there's there's the sort of um, these two lovers in the back of a car. Oh, okay. So that that that's them. Okay, okay. And that's their entire appearance. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of um I wouldn't say throwaway cameos, mm-hmm. but actually I, I could say that. Yeah, I mean because, sort of are, but because yeah, because they don't really amount to anything at the end. Mm-hmm. But you're right, while you're watching it, you're you're struggling to understand if they're important, if they're going to yeah. lead to something later on. Right, right. You don't really know. That scene in the editing room specifically, right? With Francis McDormand. Probably my favorite scene. And then they show that that scene where um Alden Ehrenreich has that parang uh, uh the, they, yeah. they change the line for him and and they also show a bit of that other film with, uh, Caesar. with Jack Houston and and and, and Agnes. But you know, it, it's was a, that Hail Caesar those, or no? No, no. It was I forget the name of that other film, but okay. but it was one of those scenes where I'm like, why is this here? Yeah, right. Yeah, and then then they go through such meticulous but breathtaking mm-hmm. sequences like the the aquatic dance number yeah. with Scarlett Johansson yeah. and, the, and the classical sort of Busby Berkeley musical with Channing Tatum, which is done so well, and you're you're almost left wondering like, oh, well, I would love to see. Like a straight-up musical from <laughs> starring Coen Channing Brothers. Tatum. Well, yeah, why not? He, he looks like he's got the chops for it. I mean, a, mu- a musical apart from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, you know what I mean? Yeah. What I like about... Okay, so a, a huge part of this movie um, sort of parodies and slightly lampoons and makes fun of the studio system mm-hmm. in the 50s. And I think this movie is set um, in the twilight of that era because they keep on saying that, you know... Um, pretty soon with a television, um, these big epic movies will be relevant. So it it's it's in the middle to late stages of the cap of the no sorry of the uh, studio system really, and I like how the Coen Brothers really captured the color yeah. of the movies in those eras. Mm-hmm. That was the most 
that 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 really uh, struck out the most mm-hmm. um, in their sort of loving, playful homage to these genres. Shout out to Roger Deakins. Yeah, yeah. Like, I especially liked how they got the color, of, the the sort of maybe garish or opulent. To a fault, the color of Hail Caesar. Mm-hmm. Remember when they showed the set, and it just reminds you of the '50s, like Ben Hur, Cleopatra yeah, yeah. sets Spartacus. in Technicolor. So that was really nice, and you really see uh, the Cohen brothers appreciate, like deep appreciation for movie making yeah, and the golden era. So yeah, the, the golden, golden era. So it's it's a bit of an homage, and also you know just making fun of the way the studio system worked back then. Yeah, yeah, and they also showed both. Color and black and white films. Yeah. One of the one of my favorite sequences is with Alden Ehrenreich and Ray Fiennes, where they're where he's directing a film called Merrily We Dance. <laughs> yeah, and it's so gorgeous, like beautiful colors, beautiful gowns. Yeah, and the yet, green the, dress and right, the, yeah. and, the, and the woman's lipstick. Yeah, and yet the film was black and white. Yeah, yeah. When they were watching the the dailies, it was a black and white film. The ones the ones that were in color were like Hail Caesar and uh, the cowboy mm-hmm. picture of of of, of Hobie mm-hmm. played by Alden Ehrenreich, who yeah. apparently is in the running for becoming. Han Young Solo. Han Solo. Yeah. I, I didn't notice that, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. They they made it set, they made it a point to show how wonderfully colored mm-hmm. that movie was. But when they actually see it in the movie, um, it's black it's and white. Always, it's yeah. always a color film. Yeah, and maybe we can talk about the character of Eddie Mannix, mm-hmm. played by Josh Brolin, who's really the main yeah, um, yeah. character in this movie, and he's a fixer. But the funny thing about it is that he doesn't really fix um, problems that relate to the actual process of making movies. Yeah, yeah. Or he just, or if ever, it, it just tangentially is related right, right. to the process of making the movie. But what he's concerned about is fixing the personal lives of the stars. Yeah. And I think that stems from an awareness that what Hollywood really is, is, you know, selling illusions. Yeah. And that part of that is selling a certain lifestyle, dream. a certain <laughs> dream that yeah. they're, stars have Mm -hmm. and it's just funny if you think about how culturally different that time was to now with TMZ paparazzi if Eddie Manic was alive now trying to police like let's say Lindsay Lohan or whatever he would probably quit his job in a way Manic is like the PR people nowadays uh, you know Olivia Popes were trying to keep you know yeah. Certain scandals out of the out of the papers and the gossip columnists in this film represented by Tilda Swinton two times yeah she plays twins yeah. and she plays both the twins. Yeah. And there are a lot of good jokes there when they don't yeah. know <laughs> who they're talking. Yeah. I love that. And there's also a sort of a competitiveness between the, the, two, the twins, two sisters yeah. and one is definitely winning. <laughs> but going back to the Eddie Manix character, mm-hmm. did you notice a certain tick that he had of constantly checking his watch? Mm-hmm. Did you make anything out of that? Because the movie makes it a point to to always show the time? Uh, not specifically. I just you sort of took it as a. I don't know. Were they trying to say something about about it? Did that have any deeper meaning, or do you think it's just a way to ground and establish a certain time frame that he's able to fix all these problems in twenty four hours? Maybe, but also I guess to also keep the audience sort of uh, grounded as to where we are in the story, mm-hmm. where we are in the day. But also, it's like a, a part of just his character, who someone mm. who needs to know all the time what's going on because he's got so many mm. sort of plates 
spinning because yeah. it's not just very multiple productions that he has to take care of. Because even like even though he's tackling some of the more sordid stuff or the more personal issues of the stars, there are some sequences where the secretary will say, "Oh, there's this production has this problem," and then he'll still fix those ones also. Maybe it's just that, but I'm uh, I tried reading about whether or not there's a deeper something right, right. to that because the name of the of the communist group mm-hmm. who kidnapped uh, the, the George Clooney character Baird Whitlock is named the future. So I'm not sure if there's if they're trying to say something about time or the passage of time or is it just me trying to dig through all these layers of possible meanings but I know so I guess it doesn't amount to anything really I don't know but that's what the film does is it makes you sort of second guess yourself like maybe there's some deeper meanings here that I'm not it's it's vague enough that you can sort of read into it into it what you want or sort of look for meaning where Mm -hmm. there might not be so much There's an interesting thing going on with Mannix's character, though, where he's throughout the film, he's sort of struggling with this job offer that he might take, yes. which is a more comfortable life, uh, a, a, a very good job, high-paying job, much more stable, uh, easier working hours where he can actually go home and be with his family. So that, But it's something that he's wary of because he feels like it would not be exciting enough. Mm-hmm. You know what I like about that plotline, the Lockheed mm-hmm. Martin offer, is because that movie did not even need that plotline at all. Mm-hmm. But the addition of that plotline just gives more depth For him. to the Eddie Mannix character. Right. So I really like that small like addition. It actually, it, at some point, it actually distracts you from the main narrative because because that Lockheed guy keeps on dragging him out yeah, yeah. of his whole shtick, right? But in the end, when you just take a step back and realize the place of that plotline to the to the you know to establish the whole character of Eddie Mannix, it you know it does play a, a quite important part mm-hmm. because it to me I read it yeah and to me I read it as his refusal to accept the Lockheed Martin job at the end um, is still part of this whole aspect of his character that he's. That he would rather sell the illusions, mm-hmm. sell the dream, rather than deal with actual real-world problems. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the, 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 the company that's offering him a job deals with you know, nuclear weapons, which is as right. real, as tangible yeah, a problem as he can try to solve. Right. So, yeah, that, that's how I read it. Yeah, that's an interesting way to read it also. I mean, in my, my, when I was watching it, I was really just reading it as more of like an acceptance of who he is. Where oh. like, well, this is what I do and I like it and I'm good at it. Even though it's contrasted with the fact that there are so many problems and it makes the job offer more tempting, he realizes, no, this is who I am. Mm. Well, I already mentioned them a while ago, but this movie also touches on the blacklist right. in Hollywood mm-hmm. and McCarthyism. Yeah. So one of the main narratives here is uh, George Clooney's character, who is this, you know, Hollywood like leading man, A-lister type, gets mm-hmm. kidnapped by a bunch of communist writers, yeah. and they sort of try to convert him to become a communist. Mm-hmm. And yeah, as I said, it it doesn't really probe that deeply into uh, the whole social context of that time, 
And in fact, the movie kind of makes fun of them and kind of portrays <laughs> them as just disgruntled writers who aren't paid enough mm-hmm. and who resort to communism as uh, as an ideology, but without really fully understanding the consequences of that ideology. And I like the parallel of that scene between the scene with the religious figures. Right, right. Because I think a big part of this movie is also about faith and believing in certain big ideas. Mm -hmm. So actually, Hail Caesar is also a movie within this movie Mm -hmm. uh, about a Roman soldier's conversion to uh, (laughs) Christianity Christianity. after seeing the body of Christ, something like that. So the movie does touch on um, how audiences and how people in general buy into faith and buy into religious beliefs. And there's a really funny scene with, you know, two priests, a rabbi, and uh, I think a missionary or something. And they'll talk about whether or not the movie they're trying to make um, offends any of the main religion. And they have a hard time reconciling some contradictions within within their own faith. Mm -hmm. And later on, in the scene between the communist writers talking to one another... They all, there's an interesting parallel there because they also struggle to reconcile some differences within their ideology. And I think yeah. that they're trying to make, the, the Cohen brothers are trying to make a connection that these two things were one and, you know, were part of the same. Yeah. And then, Manix, features. and then Mannix's character, I think that features touched on with his constant, near constant appearances at the confessional booth. Yeah. So actually, his faith also and mm. the way he tries to absolve himself of his sins. And I, I I read this somewhere and I found it very interesting that uh, one way to look at Eddie Mannix in the context of faith and this movie talking about faith is that he's actually a Christ figure mm-hmm. absorbing all of the sins and absorbing all of the faults of, of, <laughs> of the people. And you have a God figure, Mr. Spanks, was it? Or, you know, the, the studio head who you mm-hmm. never see. Right. But it's just in the background. And I found a very interesting parallel where you have Eddie Mannix saving <laughs> these people mm-hmm. from their own sins. And this is actually where I found some depth also to the, Scar- the Scarlett Johansson character, character and narrative. Mm-hmm. Because on one hand, all of these faiths sort of... One of the main cornerstones of She's their the faith figure. is... A virgin birth, yeah. right? I'm not even saying that she's a Mary, but just the fact that people are willing to buy into the idea of a virgin birth, and you no, know, but that, that was her point. That was their point of trying to fix her, right? Was yeah, they yeah. had to find a sort of um, figure. They sort of had to find a father figure. Yeah, like she couldn't be seen to just be a single mom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So right. I mean, my my point was, is people are willing to buy into a virgin birth, but they will not be able to accept. A, star. a single mother yeah, star. So yeah, so just that fundamental like, contradiction between what people can and cannot accept. That's also another like, <laughs> like thing I found interesting. But what do you, what about I know? I mean, I thought I said that wasn't Joseph also sort of like, sort of attached, sort of to Mary to sort of prevent also people from speaking about oh. like, well, who's the dad? Was that Jonah Hill? <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Because they got married, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I guess Jonah Hill 
plate. <laughs> John Hale's role amounted to something in the end. Because he had like zero lines. Maybe one line. No, he, he had a couple of lines. The one with nothing to look was Alex Karpovsky. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, and Krumholtz's character doesn't even, I think, get a name. He's yeah. just like one of the background... Extra Stevens, yeah. The <laughs> communist writer number, yeah. I think this is... Just, um, you can pair this with Trumbo <laughs> Yeah, you I want mean, to. it's playing the same week. Mm, it's, it's also interesting to watch it with something like, say, LA Confidential. Yeah. Which also Noir. Has, yeah, yeah. But also has, I mean, that whole uh, confluence of crime and Hollywood and the golden yeah. age. Um, also, there's this... I just realized now that the movie... That- in, like within the movie, yeah. they parody certain genres mm-hmm. that were symbolic of the fifties, like the Gene Kelly musicals, yeah. the Mermaid Ballet, and even the epic yeah, Caesar, the prestige epic. But they didn't do the noir. Well, they, and I realized that the yeah, movie the itself movie. is the noir. Is the noir. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I'm just yeah, yeah. saying. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Which one was Mary Lee Dance? Is it like the melodrama? That's like the yeah. Okay. The overwrought. I thought you were gonna compare this to. I thought you were gonna say that this was like the Walang Forever of of the Coens, where there's What's like that? many films. Oh, you didn't see that? No. Because there's like films within a film. There, there's different sort of excerpts from different. This is on YouTube. Comedies. No, I mean in theaters. I saw it in theaters. What? Walang Forever. Ano yun? The Dan Villegas. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Movie. Ah, the Walang Forever ng the Coens. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now we go, how did they direct? What? What's going on? <laughs> anyway. Um, so having said that, uh, final thoughts. Final thoughts, Ramon. No, I really liked it. I, I mean, but I do feel like I should maybe read up some more and find out more about those things that you were talking about. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of interesting things. But pieces. even without those things, it's still hella funny. Yeah. I mean, there's... So many great reaction shots. The Francis McDormand scene was, yeah. I think, really great. That was my favorite. I just, it just came out of nowhere. And then even the fact, you the punchline of that scene. Even even really cute puns like the fact that the Western star was playing with spaghetti. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, that's right. So you know, I mean, there's so many things like that. Yeah. that just work on a superficial joke level. And even, of course, the craft. I mean, it was lovely seeing the Coens reunite with Deacons because uh, they didn't get to work with him with, uh, with Lou and Davis mm-hmm. and Carter Burwell, of course. And, yeah. For me, uh, again, I think you should go watch this. It would be interesting to watch this also with Barton Fink. Yeah. Because, actually... They really love that era. They exist in the same universe. Barton Fink gets hired by Capital... Mm, Capital yeah, Studios, yeah. which is the main studio here where Eddie yeah, yeah. works for. I was actually half expecting Barton Fink and to show interestingly, up. Interestingly, in a recent interview, they said that if there's any film that they would make a sequel to, because the, the rumor of a Lebowski sequel was brought up, they said actually that no, the actual film that we would ever make a sequel to would be Barton Fink, which I would love because I love that movie. That I think maybe, well, that might have been my first. Cohen Brothers, where I really sort of knew that it was the Cohen Brothers. Yeah. So, before Batman versus Superman engulfs all of these movies, I think you should go check this out. Hopefully, it's still out. Hopefully, by the time this podcast is released. We got 45 seconds. I want to use it to ask you a question. 
Why do people who were adopted feel like they were rejected instead of selected? I don't feel rejected. You're sure? Very sure. Because it's not like the baby is born and the parents look and say, nah, we're not interested in this one. On the other hand, someone did choose you. It's having no control. You find out you were out of the loop when the most crucial events in your life were set in motion. As long as you have control. I don't understand people who give it up. Set backstage at three iconic product launches and ending in 1998 with the unveiling of the iMac, Steve Jobs takes us behind the scenes of the digital revolution to paint an intimate portrait of the brilliant man at its epicenter. This movie was directed by Danny Boyle and written by Aaron Sorkin, uh, starring Michael Fassbender as Steve Jobs, and also featuring Kate Winslet, Seth Rogen, and Catherine Waterston. So Ramon, I know you really love this movie. Yeah. I think we should probably start by just asking you how much you love this movie. A lot. This is my second favorite movie of last year. And what was remarkable for me was like, I was so ready to be disappointed by this and mm-hmm. underwhelmed. Because I went through a period last year, maybe two, three months, where for whatever reason, and I don't really remember, but I went through all of Sorkin's material. Like, I watched the two seasons of Sports Night. I watched all seven, even the non-Sorkin seasons of The West Wing. I even watched Studio 60 again. And then I rewatched. Um, a Few Good Men and Charlie Wilson's War. Oh, that sounds so exhausting. <laughs> I know, but I mean, but he is one of my favorite writers. Mm-hmm. When he's wor- when he's on, he's really great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, Shambra, if, if you're going through his entire oeuvre, mm-hmm. you, you really notice the sort of, not just crutches, but the things that he leans on heavily. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, much has been made of like, uh, a seeming misogyny in his work and how he sometimes treats women characters. But I was so pleasantly surprised and happy that I loved this movie so much. And um, yeah, well, how did you actually, I, said, I mean, you know how I like yeah. it. I mean, how, how did you like it? I also liked it. I actually really <laughs> like hearing, you know, like smart dialogue and dialogue between smart people right. trying to take each other down. And that's what Aaron Sorkin's good at and that's practically what this whole movie is yes and some of the movies are some of the scenes sorry are so thrilling even though it's just dialogue between right. Steve Jobs and the Jeff Daniels character like the the CEO I forgot the name of the character John Scully John Scully yeah and I like and I like specifically those scenes where they're talking fast and then it cuts to a flashback where they're arguing even faster and it cuts back <laughs> to the yeah, present day and yeah, it yeah. just escalates and the buildup of the tension is just through dialogue and of course you know, editing and score but the dialogue and the repartee between them is the highlight of yeah. of those scenes and I like um, yeah so I really like the writing of this movie just to uh, go back to what you said about Aaron Sorkin and his crutches because he also wrote uh, The Social Network. Right, right. Right. And I had just recently watched... Moneyball also. Moneyball, yeah. But I had I just had recently rewatched The Social Network. Uh-huh. And there is some similarity oh, yeah. between the way he portrayed the relationship between Saverin, Eduardo Saverin and Zuckerberg yeah. and Wozniak and Steve Jobs. And I guess... Present in both movies is the question of whether or not being being an asshole can ever be justified, or is there brilliance in 
you know tech. or is it like a side effect of brilliance yeah or yeah like, just like or is that the price they have to pay yeah. to succeed in the tech world so i i'm fascinated by that question because i also follow you know like tech. <laughs> the tech world in real life it's just a pet um interest of mine and he doesn't have an answer to that really yeah it's always ambiguous which is you know fair although yeah i mean it's it's something that recurs often in mm-hmm. in sorkin's work you know brilliant people who have these problems whether it's uh i'm thinking of like will mcavoy in the newsroom mm-hmm. you know who's who, who they're brilliant but they always have flaws mm-hmm. and again you know i think that's why it, what attracted him to zuckerberg as a subject and and jobs as a subject so i don't know what exactly the point i was trying to make Yeah, but I guess how brilliance comes with hubris and how that also comes with a lot of baggage, yeah. I guess. And I, I, in the both movies I mentioned, it's about how friendships and relationships are ruined by ambition and their brilliance. So, right, right, okay. Right, so that that's a sort of, um, I don't know, thing he goes back to, I guess. I don't know if if there's something... A trope. Uh, yeah, but yeah, but, he goes but, back but to But that. with Steve Jobs, it's like each character has a different relationship with him. If you look at Steve Jobs, it's really just 15 conversations, mm-hmm. one after the other, and it's you counted this. Wow. No, because there's only six characters. Oh, okay. Right. So he talks to each. I mean, Steve Jobs is the one who connects all of all of, all of them. Mm-hmm. So he talks to each one three times in mm-hmm. three act structure, mm-hmm. a three product launches. So there's it's really just 15 conversations, mm-hmm. and then and it's almost like an action film because it's like a it's like 15 duels really, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then each person represents a different relationship like he has John Scully is kind of a, a surrogate father figure mm-hmm. for him which is a big deal because they one of the things they deal with is his feeling of abandonment and the daddy issues that mm-hmm. arise from that and they also sort of link it to his wanting control at all times yeah. which is manifested by having mm-hmm. closed systems mm-hmm. end to end And it, it sort of hinted that you know that that why he wants control is because he felt an utter lack of control as a child, mm-hmm. having been an uh, an adopted kid. And then of course uh, there's his love interest was Catherine Waterstone, and then his own child is 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 Lisa, and then his best friend is is uh, Steve Wozniak. So it's interesting how you mentioned control because yeah the movie does. Um, take great lengths to really show how much of a control freak he was. Mm-hmm. And this movie is about, well, part of what this movie is about is showing Steve Jobs as a creator, as a creator of both the objects, the Apple products, and also of his daughter, the creation of life. And I like how they paralleled his relationship with Wozniak and his relationship with his wife and how both relationships are so fraught because... He wants control, mm-hmm. even if he doesn't. Well, even if he says he doesn't really recognize Lisa as a daughter, he was still very possessive about the way Lisa grew up. Like he was very possessive when he found out that the engineer, what was his name, Andy, Andy funded his uh, right. f- funded her college education yeah. when he couldn't really be there to stop the mother from allegedly throwing a cereal bowl at the daughter's head. Right. So, and I think part of why. Uh, his relationship with Lisa is also so tense is because that birth and that whole child was created beyond his control, control beyond his scope. So even as a father, 
he was also very you know that drive to control things still manifested even in 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 in, in his role in Lisa's life. Yeah, but that I think is the arc where he was really so adamant about that. But by the end, he had accepted very much mm. that Lisa was his daughter, and that he even uh, confessed to like his mistakes in the in the prior years, and yeah, so. It's really such a well-written, well-structured script. Yeah, uh, I love this movie so much that I, after I watched it, I ended up watching it. When I first saw it, I watched it like twice back to back. It was because I was so surprised. <laughs> I was so surprised at how much I loved the movie. Mm-hmm. Like I was in tears by the end credits the first time I saw it. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna watch this again because whenever you love something, you want to watch it. Again, right? Like and that also happened with Ma- the only other time that happened last year for me was Mad Max, where as soon as I finished watching, it's like I want to watch this right that way, again. And then because the second screening is where you pay more attention. The first time you watch anything, you're just sort of absorbed and mm-hmm. in the story, and you're just you know suspending your disbelief. But the second time you go through something, you know what's going to happen already. And I'm just paying attention to how skillfully, how how cleverly everything has been set up. Uh, and and this was done so well in the script. And then yeah. even when I got home, it's like I found a copy of the script online, and I was like, I poured through it, just seeing like how they do this it's so well done. I mean, you can see, you can feel the background of Aaron Sorkin as a screen uh, as a playwright mm-hmm. because he was a he was a very successful playwright and started very young. He wrote the the the, the play of A Few Good Men when he was I think twenty three. And then he wrote the screenplay for the Rob Reiner film when he was 28. And I think he got nominated for that. And uh, he's won the Oscar for, for Social Network. And then, But yeah, I mean, this movie, Steve Jobs and The Hateful Eight were some of my favorite films from last year that felt like actually they could be performed as plays. And I think Hateful Eight actually is going to become a play. Mm-hmm. They're going to that. be doing it as a play. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so... Just, just, to get, just to get some like geeky info aside, right? With other, one of the other things I love is the structure, and mm. it's it's unlike any biopic ever. The entire film is almost three real time scenes that are like forty minutes each, but they each have like small flashback scenes. That's what keeps it from from being totally real time things. Um, and then there's the chapter breaks that explain sort of what happens between these product launches and it's always a product launch mm-hmm. but never going into the actual launch it's always just the the minutes running up to the beginning of we the never launch. see the launches actually. right right and they stress so well how that no launch can start late yeah. and then it comes back so well at the third mm-hmm. part so the other thing is even when they shot it they were able to shoot the film in order yeah, of the story which means they actually shot the flashbacks first mm-hmm. and then they would do uh, rehearsals of each act they didn't shoot straight like all three acts one after the other what they would do is they would rehearse for a week like uh, the first product launch and then they would get that down and, and Sorkin apparently would even rewrite stuff based on things he would pick up and like what lines are some actors struggling with what would they li- what would they prefer to say so he could adjust on the fly and then they would shoot that and then they would rehearse the second act before shooting it. Mm. So, so it was very yeah, dense, dynamic sort yeah, of kind yeah. of filmmaking and script writing. Yeah. Production-wise, it was like having... It was like staging three plays. And then the other thing that I thought was... That I loved was they shot each act with different formats. Like the entire 84 uh, act is shot on 16mm. The 88... 88. Yeah, the 88 one is shot on 35, and then the 98 or 90, is it 98? 
98, yeah. yeah. The 98, the, the final act was shot on digital. So you can see well, even so the... There was a progression yeah, also. Yeah, of the format, of the clarity. Yeah. But you can also even... Uh, Fastbender was like great. You can see like the progression of like his different hairstyles. <laughs> even from the flashback where he has a beard. Yeah, yeah. Two things stand out to me with the structure. I agree that it was amazing how much how how economical the writing was like yeah. how much they condensed a lot of the backstory without actually showing it and a lot of the backstory you can deduce just right. by watching how he treats the people around him yeah. right so you, you can parse out a lot of context you know, clues a lot of context from the writing the second thing that i was amazed at was how the product launches weren't even the like the biggest Apple product launches, right? Mm-hmm. Like except the last, like, except the last. Yeah. But it didn't even touch on the iPod, yeah, which yeah. was you know they hint like at the it, biggest yeah. thing, or even the iPhone, which he was still alive when the iPhone was launched. I believe it was his, one of his last yeah. things. So it, so it, it talked primarily to his early days, but still you still get a sense of the fullness mm-hmm. of this character's life. Right, right. And <clears throat> at some points, like I know, I'm, I'm not sure if this is a criticism. Or not because uh, I'm not sure how historically accurate it's not. It's absolutely not right. Well, Which, okay, I'll go into it. Yeah, but, and yeah. I've read that it wasn't accurate. So, how does this affect Steve Jobs' legacy? Well, I'm not too concerned about that. Like, as as just a fan, I just I'm glad that it's a great film. So I'm I guess that's why the there are some. Jobs super fans who are angry with the film because it shows him as kind of a dick and an asshole. But other people like Wozniak and Andy Hertzfeld and and Lisa support the movie. Mm-hmm. They think it's a fair portrait. Even if the things that didn't happen, they agree that the portrayal of Jobs is is like kind of well rounded. Mm-hmm. Or... Because on one hand, you can <clears throat> sort of say that it's opportunistic mm-hmm. somewhat because sure, sure. because our idea of Steve Jobs like Steve Jobs is sort of the archetype for the mad tech genius mm-hmm. right and it's only a few years after his death and there's already I mean and then and then this movie sort of really like rams that in and really tries to make that the legacy mm-hmm. of Steve Jobs so I mean it's, it's not a big problem for me but you know, I mean, I, I guess if Lisa and was are okay with it. Although I do know that Tim Cook hates it. Hates it. One of the interesting things, right, for me is it's not really based. Like, if you, it's ostensibly it's based on the Steve Jobs the book, official biography mm-hmm. by Walter Isaacson. But of course, the structure of that book is nowhere close to this. But he also sort of did the same thing with the Social Network. If you read the book, it's not like the movie at all. What Sorkin tends to do with these projects, I think even including Moneyball, which is based on a non-fiction mm. book, right? I think by Michael short. Lewis. Yeah, yeah the yeah, Big yeah. Short, yeah. By Big Short writer. And then what he does is he just finds something of interest to him as a sort of hook, and then he builds around that. So with Social Network, it's a friendship between Zuckerberg and Saverin. And then with this book, actually, it was Lisa. And Lisa isn't even apparently even a major... Uh, focus of the book because it was an official biography and I think he, he like Jobs himself didn't want that to be sort of the overriding thing but Sorkin who is himself a father to a daughter I think that was where he sort of this was what made him very interested and, and he sort of started seeing what was the relationship to everyone else was mm-hmm. based on based on Lisa and then the only thing in the movie that actually sort of happened 
was that crisis at the behind the scenes before the first launch of the Macintosh. When so the voice that, yeah, didn't so work. the the voice demo not working. Mm-hmm. That was really the only thing that sort of happened in reality. Mm. The other two launches, I don't know if you know <laughs> there were all these fireworks before those, but. But I don't care because it was such a good movie and it worked. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I'm I mean, fine with. It doesn't. Really, I'm fine with him making stuff up. It doesn't take away from the merits of the movie, but right. I guess I'm just thinking about it in the context of you know this movie being in conversation with you know other cultural depictions of Steve Jobs and right, how we right. think of tech leaders, figures, tech yeah. figures, because. There are new avatars of Steve yeah, Jobs, yeah, yeah. Elon Musk, you know, Jeff Bezos. So I guess part of it is the mythology of that big asshole yeah. who's good at programming or whatever. But that's also something that's even like, for example, in the same year, right? Last year, there was also another documentary called Steve Jobs, Man in the Machine, which was directed by Alex Gibney, who earlier that year, he put out two yeah, documentaries the in the same year. Was, yeah, the Going yeah. Clear Scientology, which was great. And he's... Uh, his documentary was also very, you know, not positive only, but also showed some of the negative aspects of Steve Jobs that you might not know if you're not like really into that sort of that tech world or that that guy himself. Because like I didn't know like in for example the the Boyle Steve Jobs one, he makes a point of saying how Apple gives computers to schools, right? Mm-hmm. But in the documentary. When he returned as CEO in '98, in he was the one who killed all of the... <laughs> the next cubes. <laughs> no, no, no. He was the one who killed all of the philanthropic projects of okay. Apple. So all the charity stuff and outreach gone. And then the, well, the one I remember actually st- sort of following was when he was going nuts on that journalist who wrote about the yeah, iPhone that was left oh, okay. by oh, one yeah, of the yeah, programmers, yeah. right? In, in a bar or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I remember that. And he went after the programmer and I think he was surprised that the world wasn't on his side because, you know, it, it was fair game if it was just something that was left. It wasn't like they hacked into, you know, private databases of Apple and stole information. It was just an accident. But, you know, journalism-wise, it was fair game. Mm-hmm. So that, that whole myth of there are Steve Jobs truthers, right, who, who think he can do no wrong. And, and you can see these people sometimes on, like, comments of uh-huh. Amazon. Because I was, I was looking at some of the, the books and, and, and the, the movies. <laughs> you can see some people there who are, like... The crazy will, comments. Yeah, will not accept any negative thing about Steve Jobs ever. I guess what I... I mean, speaking of, of that, what I also think the movie captured well is the anticipation before every launch. Yeah. Like... This movie also really captures well our techno lust mm-hmm. culture and part of part of what makes the product launches <coughs> so suspenseful aside from what's happening behind the scenes is that you know that there's a crowd outside waiting for everything to happen right waiting for you know the fireworks to start launching and yeah like it adds to that tension it adds to the urgency right. of 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 the scenes and i just found that very like well done I think that's one of Sorkin's tropes, actually, is is a kind of live element that he loves to explore and play with. Uh, his first TV show, Sports Night, was about a live mm-hmm. sports show. And then there was, of course, Studio 60, yeah. which was an analog for Saturday Night Live. And then The Newsroom, which was a live broadcast yeah. news show. You're right, you're so right. So it really is some... And this one also, you know, I mean, there's behind the stage and the whole real-time effect. Yeah. It's something that he loves to explore. Right. I think because also of his... 
background as a player. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess he's really able to capture yeah the mixture of anticipation and, yeah, and, and nerviousness yeah, and yeah. just and this, the, the, the electricity yeah. in the air before the start of a live show. Yeah, so that's also another positive thing in this movie, I guess. And then one of the things I forgot to mention is like Andy Hertzfeld, the real Andy Hertzfeld, mm-hmm. played brilliantly by mm-hmm. Michael Stuhlbarg. He actually said uh, in in support of this movie, what what he said was when he watched what he said when he watched it was it's amazing. None of this happened, but all of it's true. Oh. So that was for me like okay, that was him admitting that the the character relationships are correct and the behavior is correct. So even if these things didn't happen the way it did in the movie, or these exact words may not have been said, the feelings people have towards each other was fairly, I mean, to Andy Hertzfeld anyway, accurate. <laughs> Although he was really the punching bag of <laughs> yeah, Steve Jobs sort of, yeah, the, yeah. Whole, for the whole movie. I know, I know. So I guess he was, <laughs> he, there was, there's still a residual yeah. resentment the, there. How do you like the, the score of Daniel Pemberton? You know what, to be honest, like it was literally in the background for me. Like it uh-huh. just, like, <clears throat> unlike other movies where you're always cognizant of the score or it's always there in your consciousness mm-hmm. for this movie because of the pace of the dialogue yeah. like, I, I honestly <laughs> yeah. didn't pay much attention to the score actually right. I don't remember the score for the most part I do remember their usage of some songs but mm. especially during the transition phases yeah. but the score itself was I know it was I don't want to say forgettable because it's not I, I, I don't remember it as particularly bad just that right. it really came secondary to the dialogue and yeah I just didn't I just didn't care for it. Well, maybe maybe because I've seen this like six or seven times already. (laughs) But I really like the score, even though sometimes there are slightly derivative parts because there are parts of the of the score where I'm like this sounds like something from Interstellar mm. and then this part sounds very social networky and then there's another part that's kind of like Philip Glass ish, but. Even even like the first product line, it's a very intro scene where it's just this kind of rhythmic dum 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 dum. He's trying to build the tension, and then there's a nice part where he where Jobs interrupts someone, and then the score stops also, like it's also holding its breath. Yeah. And then there's a, there's a silent pregnant pause, and then he says something to kind of try and calm other people, yeah, and then the, the, sto- the score yeah, comes yeah. back in. So I like the, those parts. But one of the things I'm curious about is like even though it's really just people conversing, it's not visually boring yeah right I mean that's Danny Boyle I mean he can you know he's a great shootist he's like Ridley Scott where even if he comes out with a bad film it's it's always gorgeous to watch can I just say those boardroom scenes uh-huh. that was like really that like I said a while ago there's only one yeah when when he was fired yeah, from, yeah. Okay. from from the board but with the but, rain yeah but it, it was done because anyway, uh, like that was a flashback right. back and forth really fast yeah 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 with, uh, but it didn't really take me away, but that's such a stereotypical like boardroom, evil, dark, raining men in suits <laughs> saying, "No, no, no, you're fired." Anyway, just just a small nitpick. That's one of the scenes though that is cross cutting between, yeah, yeah, between past yeah. and present. Yeah, yeah. Not just a not just like a contained flashback like the Wozniak. Yeah, no, no, one, no. But that one kept going back and forth, so you were because trying to follow two different arguments yeah. at the same time. Because they were trying to really get to the bottom of who really fired who, and yeah. I mean who sabotaged who. And and Scully was making a point that you it forced my hand. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. like I fired you, but yeah. that's the myth that's growing yeah. around it. Yeah. But another thing I wanted to point out was how good the actors are. Mm. And I mean, of course, we know that like Fassbender and and uh, Kate Winslet got nominated, but Waterston was good. 
So was Jeff Daniels. I mean, actually, one of the cool things for me is the grown-up Lisa at the third act. That's the actress who played the daughter of the bride in Kill Bill 2. What the fuck? That's how old she is now. <laughs> Where did you dig this piece of trivia? <laughs> no, I'm just like it's so random. But around. I mean, thank you for letting me no, know. That. I know it's just like uh, I'm, I'm very you know. But one of the questions I have for you is because one of one of the things I wonder about was this was supposed to be a David Fincher project. It was supposed mm-hmm. to be the reuni- the reunion of him and Sorkin after their success with really? Social Network. But apparently, Sony at the time when it was still with the Sony, they balked at his price like because he wanted a hundred million dollars for the budget and i think they were just like it's three product launches here behind the scenes and backstage you know, i don't know why you need a hundred million so i'm curious why he felt I, my theory is he would have used like a lot of photogrammetry like he did in panic room yeah well I get my, my reaction is i'm i'm sort of happy that it wasn't david fincher who mm-hmm. did this or else i feel like it'll be too similar to the social network right right because it's the same themes and it's probably the same directorial style at so. that time i think it was still christian bale who was yeah, yeah 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 the second thing about that is another like unique thing about this movie is the publicity around it because of the sony hack yeah and you know, everyone eventually knew all, like, Amy Pascal really had a meltdown behind, uh, I mean, over this movie. And it's an interesting coincidence because uh, this movie is also very much um, about the media and how a person like Steve Jobs is so aware of the importance of the media portrayal. He would use it as a weapon. Yeah, like the the commercial, the Time um, article. And even even, even how he sort of framed Scully as like a bad guy. Yes, exactly. So really how media conditions us to accept certain products, whether it be technological and narratives. So yeah, so (laughs) I remember just like reading about all the Amy Pascal emails saying that this is the next Citizen Kane or something <laughs> <laughs> that she's just passing up on because she can't, you know, accept David yeah. Fincher and the price tag attached to him. So, yeah. Um, hopefully it gets shown here because the reason, I mean, yeah, one I mean, reason why we wanted to talk about this was, even though we, we've, we've seen this like a long time ago, is because yeah. we're still hoping that It'll, yeah. It'll be shown here. Well, that's that's looking slim. But that's one of the reasons I'm sort of upset. It's like, because I love the film so much, I'm upset that never came here. Mm-hmm. But it also was not very successful in the States. Like yeah. it's, it's the first week, it barely made like 10 million. I think in the first weekend, it, it earned just a bit more than the... Ashton Kutcher drops biopic. Yeah, I mean, I'm not kidding. I mean, even I think in its lifetime gross, it's almost the same as the as the Ashton Jobs yeah. biopic, which was I didn't even watch that. But I think they maybe they have they maybe had hurt themselves by opening in limited release before going wide. Hmm? Why? Why would you say that? I don't know. Maybe the people who really wanted to see it had seen it already, and then uh. when they when they went wide, it parang, the, the buzz the, died. The buzz, yeah, yeah. The people talking about it wasn't really there so much. But just because it was Steve Jobs and just because of how well Social Network did, I really expected this to do yeah. much better and have sort of a, a larger presence, like even with the Oscars, which I am sure the studio was hoping for. And that's also why I kind of was rooting for Fassbender, even though, <laughs> you know, I thought it was uh, definitely not a David Goliath situation. But just, you know, just seeing... Again, he had a great 2015 between Steve Jobs and Macbeth and yeah. Slow West. 
Yeah. That was a great year for, for Fastbender. And he he also has a great 2016, mind yeah. you. Assassin's, Assassin's Creed. And, and uh, <laughs> The Something Ocean. The, yeah, the, yeah. The, one with the, the, the yeah. movie where he, he he got together with Alicia Vikander. Yeah. So. And, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's such a great examination of a guy. <laughs> Even if he is fictional, I it just works so well for me. The whole daddy issues thing, the pride, the wanting to be recognized, the 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 abandonment issues, but even his relationship with Wozniak, because in the second act, right, Wozniak says, "I'm here because I know this launch is gonna fail." But that's what friends do: is is they stand <laughs> beside their friend when they're going through stuff, something. And then in that same act, when he confronts Scully, he actually takes the line, almost like taking the credit and the, taking the work of Wozniak, when he chastises Scully for sending Woz out to sort of badmouth him in the press. He actually takes the line of Wozniak <laughs> and says, don't send my friends out, you know, to do your dirty work because I'll always stand up for Woz because that's what men do. I was like, what an asshole. I love it. And on that note... <laughs> it's also one of my favorite endings in any film. Very powerful ending for me. And I don't, I'll, I, I won't spoil it for you. To be fair, I, I think I, I cried a bit. Yeah, I can't hear that song now. The, Ma- the Maccabees <laughs> song. I can't hear that anymore without like just going back to that. And both sides now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh, whenever I hear that song, it's like I'm starting to move into a fetal position. And I'm on. But yeah, it's a great movie. Watch, Watch it. it. Please. And please play it here, distributors. And before we end this episode, just some notes and some recommendations from us. The first is starting tomorrow, the Cine Filipino Film Festival right. will begin um, showing uh, in many cinemas, actually. Sadly, none of them in Makati or the South, where we both live. But... Um, so far, I've only seen some of the trailers. I haven't really gone in depth to right. um, watch. I mean, to mostly, like really study the film. So I'll, I'll wait for some for some re- for some people's recommendations and it's, see. Which it's mostly I'll like catch. Robinson's malls, right? And then like Eastwood, it's Newport, Eastwood, Gateway, right, Shang. Right. Yeah, actually, it, it's quite yeah. varied. It, but it's just all in the north. Right. <laughs> and maybe just one recommendation. Mm-hmm. I, I was watching this three-episode BBC One miniseries. Right. It's an adaptation of one of Agatha Christie's books called And Then There Were None. Mm-hmm. And it stars Douglas Booth, Charles Dance, uh, Sam Nell. I think those are the only f- really like famous actors. But it's an adaptation of one of Agatha Christie's books about um, this... Uh, it's It's basically like your stereotypical murder dinner party. But it's So it's like an episode of Murder She Wrote. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> so this um an unknown couple invites ten strangers to their island mansion mm-hmm. and for supposedly for a dinner party and one by one they die. And right. then they have to discover who the killer is among them. And what I like about this is just that they commit like a hundred percent to the Era. It's set in, I think, 1930s, 1920s London. So, like, um, Downton Abbey. Yeah, like, Downton Abbey. I think maybe a bit later, so I don't know. Maybe 30s. Um, yeah, so it's just, like, if you're into period pieces, 
set murder in, mysteries. Yeah, and murder mysteries. It's it's perfect. It's like Clue. If you watch the movie Clue, the eighties like, parody Clue, but absolutely not funny at all, <laughs> and so serious and macabre. And mm-hmm. yeah, I really like it. It's very juicy. Um, in an up upstairs downstairs kind of like way. Downton Abbey. Yes, <laughs> except more murder, more mystery, more dinner parties. Like Downton Abbey. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's it. Uh, thank you to everyone who listened. Um, and thank you for the people who shared, like Marie Hamora, mm, yeah. Quark Canaris, Ren Aguila. Yeah, I guess they, um, they enjoyed the. And some of our shows. other friends. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm not mentioning your names. Um, maybe you're not friends yet. <laughs> but I hope to be your friend soon. <laughs> okay, bye, guys. Woo! <laughs>